A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 7. Cancelled. The next morning after breakfast, we scooted straight round to the theatre, where the manager, Mr Gerard, let us in early to begin rehearsing. Dan Rayner gave him a friendly greeting, but the fellow just turned his back, cut him dead. After his nauseating unctuousness of the day before as well. Up on the stage, Alfred persuaded a couple of hands to come in and erect our set. A beery lunch for those chaps, I thought. And when we trooped up there, Amy, the Siemens, Bert Williams and Annie Forrester were already waiting. There was an air of purpose, of grim determination. We had to make something of the duff hand that Carno had dealt us, or... Well, we had no idea what, only that it wasn't likely to be good. Amidst the gloom and teeth-clenching, I might have been the only one who was seeing a silver lining in all this. Young Daniel seemed so affable that when we got to Seattle, and the point where I'd broached the subject of adding Tilly and little Arthur to the company, he'd more than likely be a pushover. Alf clapped his hands. All right, he said. Plenty of work to do today, bringing Dan here up to speed. Sorry, everyone, Dan said, looking rather sheepish and rubbing his sandy head with a little wave. Again, I'm so sorry for yesterday. It was all a bit much. Arriving straight off the train, meeting everyone, rehearsing, and then straight on stage in Chaplin's shoes, as it were. I'm afraid it was all a bit overwhelming. But I am determined to do better. I will do better. I won't let you down. I'm sure you will, Alf said, patting Dan on the back so enthusiastically that the youngster had to take half a step forwards to right himself. Now, are we all here? Not quite. Where is... Ah! Wren Hurley emerged from the wings, fussing with a tangle in her hair, and we all looked behind her for her husband, but she was alone. Where's Ed? I said. Oh, he's got a bee in his bonnet, she said. He says he knows the sketch backwards, he doesn't need to rehearse it any more. This isn't for him, the silly arse! I said, exasperated. I know, I know that. That's what I said to him. But, oh no, you know Ed. He's got other ideas. He knows best. Well, where is he then? Still in bed? No, no, he's gone to see Mr Considine. What? Alf roared, stumping over to join us. He's gone trotting off to Mr Considine's booking office in the centre of the city somewhere. Wren wafted a hand impatiently. He thinks that if he tells Considine that Carno has sent a spear carrier, passing him off as a leading man... No offence, Dan. Rayner shrugged amiably. He thinks that Considine will be so blinking grateful that he will ask Ed to step up and take charge, which, as the senior man, he reckons is his due. Oh, my God! Alf clapped two hands to his forehead, as if to stop his brain from exploding. The steaming goof, I said. Doesn't he know about Considine, about his temper? He killed a man once, you know. Wren's nonchalance dissipated fast. Really? she said. Oh, yes, in a feud. The fellow came at him in a homemade bulletproof vest made out of silver dollars, and Considine shot him in the neck with a gun he took off a policeman. Arthur, quick, Alf gasped, grabbing my arm urgently. Maybe it's not too late. Get over there and see if you can stop the idiot. And if not, well, you know Considine, don't you? Maybe there'll be something. Something you can say. Something you can do. 
I ran helter-skelter for seven blocks, my feet skittering from under me on the ice, but I only actually fell once when I decided to jump off the curb to get a clear run in the road and stub my toe on a lump of horse dung that had frozen solid like a boulder. I found the Sullivan and Considine booking offices, which were above a rather fancy-looking Italian restaurant, ran up the stairs two at a time and found myself in a waiting room. There were chairs along the wall on either side, all occupied by way-faced vaudevillians who'd turned up on spec, as was the tradition, in their on-stage garb, presumably in case they were asked to go through their paces right there and then. The gymnasts must have been absolutely freezing, sitting there in their leotards and tights, and one old gentleman with a dog-related act was hugging a Jack Russell like a hot water bottle. I strode through the room, picking my way over outstretched feet and dog leads, and made for the main offices. "'Hey!' an indignant voice piped up. We're all waiting, you know, fella. Yeah, another complained. What are we, grilled cheese? Which struck me as a curious thing to say. If they actually had been grilled cheese, I'd have certainly found it harder to ignore them. I pressed on into the offices and found myself in a large open area with several desks, each with a telephone and someone working behind it. There was no sign of Ed Hurley and no sign of the boss himself either. As I paused to get my breath back, I took in the maps of the United States on the wall with coloured pins stuck in many of the major cities and lists of acts arranged into vaudeville bills stuck up alongside on a series of large cork pin boards. It was clearly quite an operation, lining up entertainment 52 weeks a year for the Considine Empire of Empresses, and it brought home to me forcefully all of a sudden that perhaps old Fred Carnot wasn't such a big noise out here as he imagined he was. Now that I had my bearings, I approached a receptionist, a pretty young thing with her hair curled to within an inch of its life and bright red lipstick on, who was barring the way to a closed door leading presumably to Considine's inner sanctum. She pursed her lips disapprovingly at my barging in and then tutted loudly. I put my fists onto the surface of her desk and leaned over urgently. I need to see Mr Considine right now, I said. The girl glanced at the door to Considine's office and then said, I'm afraid he's with someone at the moment. I know, I said. That someone is what I need to talk to him about. She shook her head primly. I couldn't possibly disturb, she began. Suddenly the door to the inner sanctum was flung open, banging against the side of a bookcase, and John W. Considine burst out, unmistakably incandescent with rage. I'm going to the Western Union office! Considine bellowed to the room in general, grabbing his coat and his boss of the planes and pushing past me, seemingly without even registering that I was there. "'They'll send a boy, sir,' his receptionist called plaintively. "'I'm not waiting for a boy!' Considine bellowed and disappeared down the stairs. As he swished his coat behind him, the draft whisked a large number of vaudeville lineups from the pinboards on the walls, swirled them all around the room, where they were retrieved by harassed-looking individuals moaning in despair." Under cover of this activity, I nipped quickly over to the promoter's office, where I found Ed Hurley still sitting, where Considine had left him, a stunned expression on his face. "'You chump!' I said, and he looked up at me blankly. "'You told him, didn't you? You told him that poor Dan has never been a number one, and what did you think would happen? He'd be so grateful that he'd go down on his bended knees and beg you to save the day!' Hurley still looked dazed by the storm that had evidently just broken over him, but he had the decency to look sheepish. He's going to send a wire to the governor, he said in a small voice. Right, I said. I'd better see if I can catch him. You stay here and try not to cock anything else up. I ran out into the street again, skating almost the width of the sidewalk on ice that had been trodden sheer by pedestrian traffic since start of business that morning. 
A salt shoveler with a bucket was inching slowly towards me, but hadn't quite reached this entrance. I gathered myself and set off down the street, hoping to catch sight of Considine's cowboy hat. After all, he was a tall fellow and would have been quite noticeable. No such luck, however. The big man was apparently propelled by wings of fury and already well out of sight. All I could do then was hustle to the cable office, and there, sure enough, I could see him through the window, angrily berating the wire operator, as though this would help the man convey the strength of his feelings across the Atlantic. I pushed inside and over to the counter, where I grabbed the promoter by the arm. Mr Considine, I rasped, trying to haul some warmer air into my freezing lungs. Thank goodness I've caught you. I wanted to assure you, on behalf of the Carnot Company, that we will be doing everything in our power to provide the very best performances we can for you. Phew! Considine grunted. Huh! With a glorified extra in the lead. No, no. He's... I know what he is, Considine seethed. Plucked at random from the supporting chorus as a calculated snub to me. Well, do you know what happened to the last man to treat John W. Considine with contempt? I dread to think, I said. But we can make this work, I promise you, sir. No! Considine held up his hands to silence me. A star comedian I asked for, and a star comedian I will have. And if your governor does not respect me enough to honour his commitment, then by God, sir, he will find out what it means to get on the wrong side of me. Please, sir, I beg you, don't do anything hasty. Let us have a talk before you send a wire to Mr. Carno, and I'm sure you will see that... Too late! Considine cried triumphantly. The message has already gone, hasn't it? He turned to the clerk for confirmation, who nodded. I sighed. Saying, if you don't mind my asking, saying that if he doesn't send me a reputable star name on the next damned available ship, I shall cancel the entire booking. This whole country is lousy with vaudeville acts. I'll fill the slot by lunchtime. You see if I don't. Ha! Huh? With that, he jammed his cowboy hat onto his big square head and stomped out into the street once more. There seemed little to be gained from following him, so I sighed again, seeing my breath rush out in front of my face in a thin white cloud, and made my way back to the Empress to report back. As I walked back up the half-dozen blocks, I told myself that Carno would have to back down. After all, what else could he do? And we would be back to wondering who he could possibly send. It would be rough on Dan Rayner, for sure, to reduce him to the ranks again, but I had a sneaking suspicion that the lad would actually be relieved. When I got to the theatre, Alf was standing in the stalls watching the end of a run-through with Dan Rayner in the lead role. "'How's he doing?' I hissed. Alf grimaced. "'If we had another fortnight, we might be able to pull him up to just bad,' he muttered. I filled him in on what Hurley had said to Considine and what Considine had sent to Carno. Alf exhaled heavily. "'We'll just have to let him bang heads for a little while,' he said. "'It'll all sort itself out in the end.' That end came sooner than we thought. We had just finished the matinee performance, in which young Dan had pulled off a couple of nice moments, and botched quite a few more, and we were all filing down to the green room for a sit-down and a cup of tea when we came across Alf in the corridor at the bottom of the stairs. He leaned heavily against a wall, one hand to his eyes, another clutching a crumpled slip of beige paper. I put my hand on his shoulder and found he was trembling. Alf, whatever is it? Cancelled, he whispered. Cancelled? Considine cancelled us? I don't believe it. Alf shook his head. Not Considine. Carno. Carno cancelled us? What do you mean? How could he? Alf shoved the beige paper towards me, and I flattened it out against the wall. 
It was a cable sent from the fun factory earlier that day, and I read this bombshell before handing it round. Company withdrawn from US tour, stop. All to return soonest, stop. FK. Chapter 8. The Room. Summer of 1917, somewhere in America. I don't understand, the one called John said, slinging the folder onto the table in front of him. I asked you about your relationship with Charlie Chaplin. What has all this got to do with that? Well, think about it, I said. This was all Chaplin's fault. He was the one who thought he was a bigger name than Carno. He was the one who got himself billed as the star comic in all Considine's theatres. And now that he'd gone, we were the ones left dealing with the unrealistic expectations that he'd set up. Bloody Chaplin. So you blame Chaplin for the collapse of the American tour? Absolutely. Even though it sounds like it was childish pig-headedness on this Fred Carno's part that precipitated the breakdown. He took a share of the blame, yes, but it was down to Chaplin, really. John drew a sharp breath through his teeth. I don't know, he said, glancing at his colleague who shrugged. What? What don't you know? Whether we can use you or not. Use me? Look here, what the devil is going on? Maybe, after all, the simplest thing would be for us to hand you over to the Bureau, or ship you back to England to serve your country. Don't do that, I cut in quickly. No need to be hasty. You want to know more about my relationship with Charlie, is that it? Well, there's loads more. I haven't told you yet. Loads more. L loads more? Absolutely. Loads. John sat back in his chair and regarded me coolly for a long moment, during which my heart felt like it was trying to climb into the back of my mouth. Then he waved a languid hand to indicate that I should continue. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chapter 9. The Three Musketeers. Spring, 1914. Stan, Freddy and I sat on our bags on the platform of Chicago Union Station, waiting for the great locomotive to come along and whisk us off to start the next chapter of our lives. From where we perched, shivering despite our heavy coats, we could see the old Carnot boxcar, which had been our travelling headquarters for the last three years and more, standing alone and forlorn. Someone, giggling Bert Williams was my guess, had once added a stripe of paint that transformed the legend Private Car with a C on the side of the wagon so that it read Private Car with a K, which had always amused us and made it feel like it was our own. 
Now we could see some railroad lackey scrubbing away at this additional stripe, over there in the freight yard away to our right, and somehow this brought home to us more forcefully than anything else could have, that our American adventure for Fred Carnot was at an end. The company meeting to finalise the details of our evacuation from the New World was a miserable affair. As Alf explained the arrangements he'd made, travelling by train to New York, and then a couple of nights waiting to cross on board the Oceanic, I bitterly contemplated the ruination of all the plans I'd had since we'd got shot of Chaplin. I'd been looking forward to making my way, town by town, theatre by theatre, way out west to Seattle for a reunion with Tilly, lovely, blonde, green-eyed Tilly, and the son she had presented me with so unexpectedly. And then? Well... Tilly and little Arthur would have joined us. I would have swung it somehow. I'd have brought Alf round, got young Dan on side. Stan would have backed the idea. Amy would have helped. I cursed my own foolishness for thinking things would ever fall into place so damned neatly, especially when Carno was involved. Now, instead of heading west with a song in my heart, I was to be carted off in the opposite direction entirely. Pretty soon there would be a continent, no less, between me and Tilly, and then the Atlantic Ocean as well. And what could I do about that? Nothing at all. I was the governor's man, wasn't I? Wasn't I? No. The word came so firmly and so loud that it even startled me. It was a moment or two before I was absolutely certain it was even my voice that had uttered it. Sorry, Arthur, Alf said, a puzzled frown on his face. You mean, no, you don't want to have two days off in New York to do as you please? I don't understand. No, I said again, a little less forcefully perhaps, but still with enough oomph to grab everybody's attention. The company looked at me, astonished, and I looked back at their open mouths, their furrowed brows. "'I'm not going to go back to the fun factory,' I declared. "'I'm not a chattel for Carno to do with as he pleases. I'm not going to be tossed this way and that on his whim. I've given him six years of my life, and still he treats me like the dirt on his shiny little shoes. Well, I'm not going to stand for it any longer. I want to stay in America, and that is what I'm going to do.' There was a shocked silence. My colleagues were not used to seeing anyone standing up to the governor, even if he was four and a half thousand miles away. Alf gave a little cough, almost like Carno himself, but the withering sarcasm that would have followed had the governor been there in person was mercifully absent. Well, that's, um, I suppose that's your choice, the burly company manager said, managing to make it clear that it was not a choice he approved of. But where will you go? What will you do? I shall try my luck in Seattle, I went on, You've all seen how vaudeville is thriving. There are far more opportunities here than at home. I shall be fine. Don't worry about me. Or me, Stan cut in. Really, I said. Absolutely, Stan said, the light of enthusiasm gleaming in his eyes. I've had a bellyful of old Carno. I'm coming with you. I was touched and offered him my hand, which he took with a grin. Suddenly a third hand clasped both of ours, and Freddy K. Jr. was beaming at us. What, Fred? You too, I said. "'Count me in,' he cried. "'One for all, then all for one. What?' "'Your old man will be livid,' Stan said. "'Won't he, though?' Freddy grinned. "'But you know as well as I do that he'll just shove me into the office as soon as I get back, "'adding up columns of figures and paying the supers and whatnot. "'I'm not ready to go back to that. Not yet, anyway.' "'Good lad,' I said, clapping him on the back. "'In that case,' Alf said, scratching his chin, "'in that case, well, here.' He rummaged around in his maroon-coloured folder and brought out three tickets bearing the livery of the White Star Line. Take these to the offices of the shipping company and you should be able to return them for cash in hand. That'll start you on your way at least. Alf, I said as I took the tickets from him, won't you get into trouble for this? What the hell, he muttered. The old bastard has messed you around long enough. 
He owes you this much, at least, I reckon. Stan, Freddy and I embraced him in turn. You've always seen us right, Alf, I said. Make me proud, boys, Alf said. Make me proud. So Stan, Freddy and I sat on our bags as the New York train swept into the station and then waved as our friends and colleagues peered out of the windows at us, chugging out of our lives, possibly forever, we couldn't possibly know. Amy, bless her, looked quite tearful as their carriage eased by, and Wren blew as a kiss that somehow managed to cause a stirring in my loins even through the steamed-up glass. "'Listen, lads,' I said, "'I just want to come clean. You know the reason I'm going to Seattle is to meet up with Tilly, don't you?' "'Excellent news!' Freddy cried. "'What I mean is, I have no particular notion of what to actually do once we get there.' "'Apart from getting to know your little chap, of course,' Stan said. "'What's this?' Freddy said. I'd only confided the secret of my fatherhood to Stan, although Amy, as Tilly's best friend, had also known. Freddy, however, had been kept in blissful ignorance. "'Tilly had a baby,' I said. "'His name is Arthur, and I am his dad.' "'Good heavens! Why, this is marvellous news! But listen, are you sure we won't be in the way?' "'In the way? Of course not, you chump,' I said. "'I'm delighted to have you both along. I just wanted to make sure it wasn't under false pretenses.' Freddy punched me hard on the arm. "'It's not just Tilly who's living in Seattle, you know,' Stan said then. "'There's Mike Asher. If he has that burlesque house back on its feet, then he might have something for us. And then there's old Considine. That's where his head office is, isn't it? And that big house we visited that time. If we get something together, I'm sure he'll give us a go.' "'You know, you're right,' I said, becoming enthused. "'He owes us a turn, doesn't he? Maybe even two, considering how we came to be in our current cirques.' The Pacific Coast train pulled in then, and we clambered aboard, already beginning to have ideas for a new routine. And do you know, by the time we pulled into Seattle Station, travel-worn and tired from laughing, we'd come up with something pretty good. Stan called it the Nutty Burglars, and like everything that popped out of his head, it was packed full of gags, piled on top of other gags, teetering atop yet more gags bursting to get out. There were four characters... Stan and I would play the burglars of the title, breaking into a big house while the swanky owners are away. They're interrupted by a maid, who would be played by Tilly, and one of the burglars distracts her by flirting while his partner in crime gets on with cracking the safe. Freddy would play a comic dolt of a policeman, who would walk in on the robbery but be totally oblivious to what was going on. Tilly would be so taken in by Stan's charming ways that she would end up helping the burglars rob her own master's house, and the climactic bit of nonsense involved a bomb with a fuse which I had to light in order to bust the safe. It happens that the maid knows how to open it, though, so the bomb is redundant. It gets passed from hand to hand until finally we throw it out of the window, where it explodes. The punchline to the whole bit was the return of the policeman in burnt and blackened rags to furiously chase us all as the curtain comes down. We were all fired up and eager to start this new chapter of our lives, so while Stan and Freddy set about finding us somewhere to stay, I headed straight off to break the good news to Tilly. You know the old saying? The poet Burns came up with it. The best laid plans of mice and men gang aft aglay. Sounds like it's going to make perfect sense until it goes all Scottish at the end. Well, it turns out that the half-baked plans that haven't really been thought through at all, they also come to grief. Perhaps slightly less surprisingly, now that I think about it. Anyway, the last time I'd seen Tilly had been back before Christmas, when the Carnos had last been in Seattle, and led by Charlie. It had been a bit of an emotional whirlwind that week, to be honest. I'd not seen her for well over a year when I found her working at Mike's Place, a burlesque house run by my old Carno mate Mike Asher and his wife Lucia, a statuesque burlesque beauty. 
I'd discovered the truth behind Tilly's mysterious departure from the company, and that the child she'd been carrying then had been mine, my son, little Arthur. When I last took my leave of her and the baby, it was with a promise to return as the number one of the Carno Company to sweep her off her feet. It occurred to me then, as I hurried through the streets towards Mike Asher's burlesque house, that I should perhaps have sent further communications in the intervening months. However, now that the Carno Company was disbanded, and mostly heading back to Blighty, I'd felt that writing to Tilly about that would just muddy the water unnecessarily. Far better to turn up on the doorstep, make a big surprise out of the whole thing, and in the excitement and exhilaration of that reunion, she would be bound to go along with the new plan I'd put together for us. That was what I thought and I kept on thinking it right up to the moment I turned the corner and saw Mike's place. The sign was gone, the one that boldly, gaudily announced that this was a burlesque house and open for business. The windows were boarded up, and the building looked for all the world as though it had been completely abandoned. When we were here before, Tilly had been appearing in an unlicensed burlesque of Carno's precious mumming birds with Mike Asher and Billy Ritchie. Carno himself had shown up unexpectedly the night we were there, and had forcibly ended the performance by beating seven bells out of Mike right there on the stage, threatening all kinds of legal action as he did so. So was that what had happened? Had Carno driven Mike out of business? And if so, where had he gone? And where was Tilly and little Arthur? I leaned against a wall as the enormity of this struck me, because of course I had no other way of contacting them except care of this place, this empty hulk. What was I to do? As I stood there, I noticed a couple of figures strolling up to the door, which opened to admit them with a brief flare of light from inside. So, the building was not deserted after all. I hurried over and pushed inside, to find that what had been a thriving burlesque house just a few months ago now seemed to be a Nickelodeon, and a rather seedy one at that. There was a strong smell of beer and tobacco mingled with the atmosphere of a room where the windows had not been opened in some considerable time, and I could hear a murmur of desultory sniggering at the monochrome antics of some second-rate practitioner or other. A woman sat behind a little table by the entrance, watching the screen with a bored expression, and she glanced at me with half a spare eye and wordlessly held out a paw for the entrance coinage. "'Excuse me, madam,' I said. "'Shh!' she hissed. "'What?' I said. Don't disturb the patrons, if you please, sir. But there's no sound, I said. There's not even a piano player. That's how they like it, she whispered. And if folk come in here making a racket, they get to thinking it might be the police. The police? I frowned. Why would the police? It's half a buck to come in, and the bar is round to the right. Half a buck? What sort of flickers are you showing? I whispered. But either she didn't hear me, or she ignored the question, snapping her fingers impatiently for the cash. I just... I began louder, and the woman put a finger to her bright red lips. I leaned over the little table. I just require some information, I whispered. Do you work for Mike Asher? Who? she frowned. Mike Asher. Last time I was in town, this was his place. Mike's place. Oh, yeah, she said. I remember. His wife was... Here she used her hands to pantomime Lucia's impressive bosom. That's right, I said. Well, they sold up and left town. Ooh, months back. Left town? I felt my stomach fall down to my boots. I don't suppose you know where they went. Sorry. The woman was distracted then by something on the screen, which she could see from her perch while I could not, having not yet stumped up the wherewithal to pull the mauve velvet curtain back and go inside. You don't remember, do you? A girl who was with them, Mike and his wife. She had a little baby. Huh? 
Um, no, no, I don't. Now, are you coming in or not? But I was already pushing my way out, past another couple of fellows on the way in, out into the daylight, to contemplate the ruin of my hopes. (laughs) 